You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning, Grace family. It is good to be with you on this Lord's Day. It is in the hearts of all the people of Grace Community Church, I am sure, that we meet together as soon as we can at the church building. And please be assured that both the elders and the staff are working on getting us back as soon as possible. We would like for that to be sooner rather than later, but things keep changing and we're just not sure. Please know, though, as soon as we can safely get back to worship together, we will do so. You will be hearing a lot more from the elders in these next few weeks. This morning, we come to the final instructions that Jesus delivered to his disciples in John 13 through 17, known as the Farewell Discourse. Well, actually, this is the last direct instructions that he will give his disciples, although when he begins to pray in John 17, he will indirectly uh, continue to instruct them and to instruct us as well about the ways of God and his amazing love for us in Christ. John 16 16 through 33 is somewhat of a summary of what Jesus had been teaching this entire evening on the night before he was crucified. By this point in the farewell discourse, Jesus and his disciples are heading toward Gethsemane, and we all know what that means. They didn't know what it meant at the time, but we do. So as they walked along the streets of Jerusalem, and Jesus said some things that were rather confusing. The disciples were whispering back in the back amongst themselves, hoping for Jesus not to hear their questions about what he was saying. But the one who knows and sees all things knew indeed their questions, and he addressed their questions to the level of their understanding at the time, promising them that they would soon understand, and at that time, when the understanding came, their hearts would be filled with unspeakable joy. What would bring such joy, especially if what Jesus told them was going to come true? He had already told them in, early in John 16, you will be put out of the synagogue, ostracized from Jewish life. Some of you will be killed, and those who are killing you will think that they are doing God a service. All of these things would come true. They're recorded, some of them were recorded in the book of Acts. It is also true that the disciples rejoiced together even when they were beaten and their lives were in danger. Why? Because they finally understood that Jesus had come not to save them from the Romans, or even the Pharisees, but to save them from them, their sins. In fact, Jesus did not come to save us from ourselves. He came to save us from a righteous God who cannot tolerate sin in his presence. More about that later. As we prepare to jump into our text, may I ask you, what 
has aggravated you this week? If I ask you to list three things that have been fairly significant frustrations in your heart and mind, even if they were just sort of brief, and you were forced to tell the truth, would you be able to list three frustrations? Would you possibly need more than one sheet of paper to list all your frustrations? I hope this message helps us at the level of the things that aggravate and frustrate us. But the truth of this text is not about finding joy in, in despite our aggravations. This text is about finding joy in the face of persecution. Let that sink in for just a moment. Jesus was promising joy even though the disciples would be beaten and killed. And our joy seems to evaporate when someone cuts us off in traffic, someone who should be sheltering at home, don't you know? Or we're upset because someone gets the last loaf of bread at the grocery store. Never mind that we could go to any number of grocery or convenience stores and get a loaf of bread. But someone got the last one, and they hurried to get there before you did. Or maybe someone in the home used all the hot water by taking a long shower. Perhaps we have been rather upset with politicians or news reporters or those tasked with enforcing the shutdown. While such frustrations are very real in our lives, my goodness, what if we were being dragged out of our homes and thrown into jail for our faith in Jesus? What then should our attitude be? Well, frankly, the question is relevant, which is why our aggravations do matter. What now should our attitude be in this day and age? All believers at all times should assume the same posture to which Jesus called, promised really, his disciples. A Holy Spirit-filled joy. Joy in the resurrected Christ. Joy in our union with Jesus according to the Father's plan. This joy should characterize our lives in times of plenty, in times of persecution, in times of uncertainty, or in times of simple inconvenience. At all times, all times, we are on mission, worshiping the resurrected Christ and proclaiming his gospel in the hope of eternal life that is for all, available for all who will repent and believe in Jesus. The gospel message is never going to be popular, but we will have joy even when we are opposed. What a coincidence that we should arrive at this text about joy in this time when not many of us are very joyful. No coincidence at all. I hope your Bible is open to John 16. We're going to be reading verses 16 to 33. Actually, 16 to 33 
those verses have already been read. We're going to jump in, though, and dissect them before bringing application at the end of the message. But before we jump into the text, would you pray with me? Dear Father, thank you that we can pray directly to you. Jesus said we could. Even though he was speaking to the disciples, that truth uh, downs and, and, and goes down through the ages to all believers who know Christ as their Savior. We can come directly before the Father. And the Holy Spirit helps us to pray when we don't know how we should pray. Blessed truth. You love us. And that baffles us because we know us so very well. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes this morning to the truth of your word as Jesus is exalted. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In the first half of our text, Jesus has an interesting conversation with the disciples. It doesn't begin as a conversation, but it quickly turns into one. We know why Jesus came to earth, to die for our sins and to seek and to save those who were lost. But the disciples did not yet know what we now know. Even though Jesus had tried to tell them about his death and resurrection, Peter even sought to dissuade Jesus from his course of action, his planned course of action, and he was rebuked for his efforts, as well Peter should have been rebuked. By the way, when, when Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You seek the things of man, not the things of God. You ever think about how if Satan can use Peter, he can surely use me. All the more reason to stay close to Jesus and to follow him, even when it doesn't make sense. As Jesus and his disciples walked along the dark streets of Jerusalem, he told them in John 16, 6, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. I don't know that I would have understood that any better than the disciples did. I mean, remember the Holy Spirit had not yet come to, to guide their thinking. Naturally, they began to question what Jesus meant. They had no category, no category whatsoever to understand how Jesus leaving was a positive development, even though he had promised to send another advocate in his place. Jesus knew what they were saying, of course, even though they tried to keep him from hearing. And so he drew him into a conversation. Jesus told them that their pain and suffering would be intense, but that they would that would turn into intense joy. Could there be a better analogy than childbirth? Intense agony that turns to extreme joy, not happiness, but transcendent joy. Furthermore, the emotions that the disciples would experience would be the opposite of what Jesus' opponents would experience. Anguish to joy for the disciples. Celebration to 
Well, it leads to confusion when the leaders, the religious leaders, saw the impact that Jesus' resurrection had on the disciples' lives. The powerful preaching that would be undergirded by the, by, by the Holy Spirit. The suffering and shame of Golgotha, the despair of the cross, would be put into perfect perspective at the resurrection. You can imagine how the disciples felt after Jesus' crucifixion. I mean, it's not that he left in the night when he said, I'm going away. It's not that they woke up the next morning and he was gone and no one could find him. They knew that he had been crucified. Probably they watched from a distance and he had been laid in a grave. No wonder the disciples were in despair. The joy Jesus promised in verse 22 would be equal to the sorrow that preceded it. And no one would be able to take the joy from the disciples, no matter what was done to them. When we read verses like John 16, 23 to 24, it is important to understand the context or our application of such verses can get well out of hand very quickly. It can get away from us before we're even aware of it. Verse 23 sounds like Jesus is signing a blank check for the disciples to fill in at their discretion. Whatever they want, however much they want, wherever they want it to be cashed, just pray and the Lord will answer your prayers. But the context reminds us that Jesus is referring to prayer about the mission that he is now leaving for the disciples to continue under the leadership of the Spirit. And furthermore, this mission will cause them to be beaten and even to be martyred. <laughs> Time and again, Jesus promised that he would not leave the disciples without grace and without access. God is going to answer our prayers. Think about this. He is going to answer our prayers in our favor. Not always according to our desire, but always for our good because God loves us. Verses 25 through 27. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. We take so many of God's blessings for granted, don't we? Access to the God of the universe through Jesus is one such privilege that we tend to take for granted. Can you imagine how stunning Jesus' words sounded to the disciples? How amazing these words would have been to Jewish men? Once a year, the high priest would approach God in a carefully prescribed manner in a place known as the Holy of Holies. And he, had, and he must be careful because if he went in un 
cleansed from his own sin or in his own way, he would be struck dead by God. And now Jesus tells us, for truly this truth extends to us, that the Father himself loves us. We can approach him directly. The Catholic view of access is not only do you have to go through Jesus to get to the Father, but you have to go through Mary to get to Jesus. And of course, all this begins when you meet with the priest. Jesus says you will be able to go straight to the Father. The imputed righteousness of Christ to sinners is at such a level that we can come directly into God's presence. I remember repeatedly attempting to straighten my life out as a teenager. I, I'm looking more like I looked by then. Hopefully I'm not acting like I did back then. But, but time and again, I would come to the Lord and say, Oh, God, forgive me, and I have, to, I have to do better. I just can't continue to live like this. One day, my friend told me that his pastor had said to him that if you want to get to God, you have to come through Jesus. And so on May 1st of 1972, I got on my knees and prayed, Lord, I am coming through Jesus. My life was changed at that very moment. That was my spiritual birthday, and Lee Williford, out of the blue, texted me on May 1st. I, I hadn't even thought about it, but he said, happy spiritual birthday. Thank you, Lee, for remembering that. That was a big day, the most important day of my life. It was years, like not years, but it was, it was weeks later before I began to understand what it meant that a sinless Savior went to the cross to not only die a cruel death, but to, to, to take my sins upon himself so that the wrath, the righteous wrath of a holy God, wrath that deserved to be poured out on me, might be appeased. Jesus' blood became a propitiation for my sins. And if you don't know the Lord, if time and again you've tried to come to the Lord, but nothing seems to ever work, so to speak, may I tell you, as my friend told me, you must come through Jesus. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and say, Oh, dear Lord Jesus, save me. Because of your death on the cross, I believe, save me. By the way, my friend's pastor was Jim Aycock. For most of 93 years, Jim and his beautiful wife, Joy, have been sharing this good news of the gospel, and I got caught up in it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jim. I do have one question, Jim. How is it that you got a woman 20 years your junior to marry you? I, 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 I haven't figured that out yet. Back to the text. Jesus' claim in verse 28 to be returning to the Father from whom he came is another one of those statements that we just kind of pass over because we know the whole picture. But, but again, would have been stunning to the disciples. 
It was an unmistakable claim of pre-existence. No Jewish man in his right mind would say such unless he was who he claimed to be, God in the flesh, the Son of God, to be precise. The exchange between Jesus and his disciples in verses 29 to 32 is a light moment in the most serious of conversations. Okay, the disciples say, now we understand what you're saying because you have finally begun to speak plainly. We get it. Then Jesus said, probably like this, with the corners of his mouth slightly upturned. Oh, do you now believe? How could he be amused at such time? At such an hour? I'm not sure, but it certainly seems that way to me. He quickly tells the disciples that they do not yet understand him. They will all go to their homes, not because of a pandemic, but because they would be afraid to show their faces in public, lest they be arrested and crucified as well. Don't you know that verse 32 is a comfort for believers who are sick during this pandemic and those who are sick with the coronavirus and not allowed to have anyone beside them sometimes in their final hours on this, on this earth. Even when we are alone, though, we are not alone if we know Jesus. This is also true when believers who have been close to you walk away from him. Don't you know that the disciples' question between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, if they had gotten it right, don't you think they, they thought, was I wrong? Were we mistaken? No, they were not. We are never alone. Verse 33 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have already overcome the world, Jesus said, by my word. This is not a promise for an easy life. You will have tribulations, but you will understand that the primary battle has already been fought and won by Jesus. Although there will be setbacks in life, I am placed on a path that is steadily in the direction of the land and the day when there will be no more sorrows, no more tears, no more pain, no more sin, in fact. We can only imagine the level of joy that the disciples experienced when they saw the resurrected Jesus. All indications are that their joy did not diminish through the years. I, I'm sure they grew tired at times and they were discouraged. But the joy they had in Jesus kept bubbling up in their hearts even when they suffered persecution. There is instruction for us here. We may not be suffering persecution, but we do suffer difficulties and aggravations and opposition even when we preach the gospel. 
three points of application to help guard the joy that is already ours in Jesus. Do you remember those aggravations from the early portion of the sermon? Good, because this first point reminds us that we should realize it is time to loosen our grip on things that do not matter. I am an expert on justifying things that matter very much to me, but may not be important in view of eternity. Can one really claim to be an expert, though, when most people seem to be equally gifted in such justifications and rationalizations? When I was at Bible college, there were professors who would say things like, I was robbed of a blessing this morning in chapel. The young man who sang did a beautiful job singing, but his hair was a little too long, so I was robbed of a blessing. I do hope that I have not robbed you of a blessing with my hair. I can't get my hair cut, so there you go. Although I learned much, and I mean a great deal about Scripture at Tennessee Temple, you would agree that such statements from some would indicate that a few of the professors were a tad legalistic. You know what? The things that rob us of our joy make about as much sense now as that did back then. Someone said what you were going to say before you could speak, so you didn't get credit for the idea. What about your response to politics and slanted news networks, which is redundant, of course, or perhaps your neighbor is slow cutting his grass. Why do you think we are so easily distracted from mission? Might it be that we have our own ideas about how life should unfold? And we don't like being contradicted? <laughs> this might be true even when we think about mission. This is also true in the churches we wrestle, in our churches we wrestle with the best ways to fulfill the mission that God has given us. Perhaps we will do better with the second point. It is also time to tighten our grip on things that do matter. What truly matters in the big picture? I could have gone much deeper in the first point, but it would have hurt me too much to list my own sins and my, own, and my grip on the things that really don't matter. I could have spoken about jobs and relationships and others' perceptions of us and houses and cars, and you get the idea. What mattered to the disciples after Jesus was resurrected from the dead? The things that should matter to us. There is no doubt that the apostles had a different role to play on this earth than we do. But they played their roles with all their might to the death, and so should we. They had already left homes and, and, and land to follow Jesus. And now they would endure all hardships to proclaim the gospel to the world. We should loosen our grips on the things that do not matter, material goods, petty jealousies, idle distractions, and we should tighten our grips, grip on things that do matter, such as our relationship with the Lord, 
through time in the word and prayer and worshiping with the church family. We should focus more on the mission that God has given us and on our relationships with our families and our neighbors, etc. All with eternity in view. I hope your spiritual life has been strengthened during these days. More time in the Word, more time in prayer, and in biblically directed and thoughtful meditation. Have you considered how different life may look one year from now? We don't know where this virus is going. We, we don't. We may think we do, but if you hear one word today, you're going to hear a different word tomorrow. <clears throat> one thing we know for sure, this virus has not been, nor will it be kind to our economy. It would be prudent for us to limit our prophecies and predictions of what will be in a year from now. I can tell you something that will not be different. That is the call of the Lord for our response to these times. Have you considered the benefits of being forced to seek joy in the things that matter? It comes down to the focus of our last point. It is our privilege to embrace the joy that is already ours in Jesus and in the mission that he has given us. I initially framed all three points in the second person singular. Embrace the joy that is already yours in Jesus and in the mission that he has given you. The blessings extend to single believers truly, but we are designed to experience these blessings in community. This is especially evident in the local church. Our joy is in Jesus, and what great blessing it is to be in harness with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ as we share the gospel with those in our community, in our state, in our nation, and around the world. Do not think that our time in limited face-to-face -face interaction has limited our community. It is not. We continue to gather in this space for worship. We continue to minister to one another and to love one another deeply. Joy is already ours in Jesus, in our church family, and in the mission he has entrusted to us. When we gather, we will come with different ideas about masks and hugs and handshakes and all the, the, the like. And we will be addressing, by the way, some of these issues in the next few weeks. But dear church family, may we not be robbed of a blessing because we're focusing on the wrong things. Because we have different opinions about things that may feel important but are minor in the big picture. The disciples' overwhelming sorrow turned to joy that could never be taken away. We have been given the same joy that the disciples were given. 
We acknowledge, though, that it is a challenge in, to embrace the joy that is already ours, that already exists. I want to close this morning by reading Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. I don't know why. I just think it, it, it really fits from the, the truth of the text that we have this morning and what we're facing now and what we're going to be facing in the weeks ahead. I hope you see the connections that are so clear in my mind, although that's a big ask to think what's clear in my mind. Now remember, Romans 12 comes after 11 theologically rich and packed chapters about sin, about Jesus' blood being offered as a propitiation for our sins or satisfaction or an end to the wrath of God against our sin when we hide behind him and about faith and about Adam and Jesus being the two representative heads of all history and about the fact that we don't have to sin because of our union with Christ but we will sin because the flesh continues to live in us. And the Romans 8 chapter about our hope and suffering and purpose and suffering and how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and then the amazing ways that God has designed it all to work together in choosing us to be his children. <laughs> With these truths ringing in our hearts, would you bow your head for a moment and just pray? Lord, let me hear these words for me. May the Holy Spirit burn them on my heart. May I not be thinking about, oh, I'm, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. These words are for me. And if, in so understanding and receiving my responsibility, these words are for us, for Grace Community Church. Amen. Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay one, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And that's a good thing somehow, by the way. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What a good 
word for us. Even as this passage shows us our sin and our shortcomings, it leads us to repentance and the seeds of joy are embedded in the prayer of repentance. It just works that way. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Thank you, Father, for sending your Son and for opening our hearts to understand the gospel. Thank you for giving us eternal life, which brings joy that cannot be taken away. May we rest in you as we love one another well and as we forgive even as we are forgiven. Life and circumstances do not conspire to bring us joy. They conspire against us. But the joy for which we long is already ours in Jesus. Turn our hearts to you, Lord. Continually turn our hearts toward Jesus, dear Father. And it's in the name of the Son we pray, and we know our prayers are held by the Holy Spirit, this marvelous Trinity, with whom we will be brought into amazing union, as we will understand when we get to John 17. In Jesus' name, and all it means, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.